Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. So as we sit here on this Thursday afternoon taping the On The Tape podcast, one thing stands out to me. It is opening day of baseball. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It has been erased like a blackboard rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. That is beautiful. That that is, um, it's not even chat GBT. That's actually Danny Moses, which is amazing. Exactly. It's incredible. So what what you know what do I'm thinking about? By the way, this is the On the Tape podcast. Guy Dummy, Danny Moses, Dan Nathan here. Thanks for joining us as always. It's just the three of us today. And you know, when you think about opening day, baseball specifically, it's that old saying, hope springs eternal. So I actually looked it up because I thought I knew where it was from, but it's actually from a poet, Alexander Pope. And he's actually the second most quoted poet behind, of course, Shakespeare. He's also the guy that wrote, to err is human, to forgive divine. So here I am thinking about it. Hope Springs Eternal comes from his essay, An Essay on Man. And it speaks to how we're wired to be optimistic beings, regardless of what we see. We always want to be optimistic. And I totally get that. And hope absolutely springs eternal, Danny. And I want to be optimistic. But you know what? I'm not wired that way, unfortunately. As much as I'd like to uh, live at the altar of Alexander Pope and his writings, there are things out there that continue to concern me. You know, I never know what you're going to open with. And just for those people out there, we don't rehearse. Guy brings this on. So we do not have any idea what Guy is going to start with. I don't know if it's going to be a song, a movie, what it might be. But let me say this. I thought you were going to open like this. Danny, in 1972, there was a band that once had... Two brothers in it, Tom Fogarty and John Fogarty. But Tom Fogarty decided to leave the band in 1971. And in 1972, a song was written about that departure of his brother. And it was called, Someone told me long ago, there's a calm before the storm. I know. All right. So you I are, think where you we are, are that, brilliant. In the course of eight me, minutes, I mean, yeah. you did. It's brilliant. Continue. I just want, so... Credence, Clearwater Revival, obviously, 
I feel like this is the calm before the storm. And, you know, I'm looking around. Yes, the market's been up. It doesn't feel bullish in terms of how the market's going up. It feels like there's just an excuse to move higher because there's no, quote, bad news or blowups that are occurring that are out there. And I think the one thing that's been lost is the Signature Bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, what's going to happen with First Republic Bank, the FDIC come to the rescue and all this stuff. I think, again, I go back to how this market has been for the last several years, which is immediate gratification, you know, trading, not investing, what's happening today. And what happened was we pulled forward or started to try to explain to people the commercial real estate bubble, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit more that's kind of out there. Commercial real estate doesn't blow up overnight, right? It takes years for the cycle to unwind. So I think people are conflating a little bit. See, I told you everything was okay, but let's put this in perspective. The S&P kind of in the Ides of March was around 3850, right? And that was coming off, you know, obviously the highs in February. We were early February 4180 when I could barely speak. We're kind of back into that mid-range right here, you know, kind of 40, 40, 40, 50. We're kind of directionless here. And we have a big economic number coming tomorrow with this PCE. And again, I hate to trade economic numbers, but there's just been just no news at all other than just an excuse to kind of drift higher. You know, you see the NASDAQ and how it's performing. There has been a flight to kind of just safety and kind of big numbers. And that's fine. People want to own things, but they want to own and feel like they can own something that, quote, is not going to blow up, which explains why banks aren't really participating in this rally so much. But you have good companies that are outperforming and they're taking the NASDAQ, at least, to kind of a bull market rally, if you will, from the 20 percent level. We've been talking about this, I guess, for weeks now. So you just mentioned that the banks are not participating. If you just look at the move that, say, the XLF had, and again, Berkshire is the largest holding there, but it really is JP Morgan, Bank America, City, Wells, and a handful of other names that make up maybe 50 percent of the weight of that ETF. And if you're telling me that what's gone on in the regionals over the last few weeks is not systemic, I mean, there there is a little bit of doubt in the investors in the XLF. LF complex. Uh, and it's not just major money center banks and investment banks, right? If you look at the inability for some of these other regionals to get out of their own way, if you look at the continuation, we're going to talk about Schwab, where it trades relative to just kind of not being able to get off the mat despite no shortage of individuals, pundits, analysts, other than one today who've been defending this name. It just can't get out of its own way. And then look at what's going on with these life insurance names. And we've been talking about this a little bit here. So again, I think all the cross currents between what the Fed, the FDIC, the Treasury, the White House, the calls for further regulation, this is going to be the thing that's going to be like like a yoke on, on the, uh, I think, on the backs of these financial institutions. And that's what's going on with insurers. If they are deemed to be systemically important, that means they're going to have much higher capital ratios. That means that they're going to basically be able, um, not be able to do a lot of the sorts of activities, the return on, uh, on, on equity investment, all that sort of stuff, right, is going to be that much more difficult and the valuations are going to be lower. And so again, to me, at least investors are speaking with their wallets right now, but we haven't seen any big hiccups in those markets yet. And maybe that's the connection, Danny, with commercial real estate. And that's really what kind of brings that to the A1 section of the Wall Street Journal. We've been talking about commercial real estate for a while. We've already seen defaults are starting to occur. That's not new news. I remember back in the crisis in 2008, Life insurance companies were excluded from having to mark to market kind of their 
CMBS portfolio, if you will, right? Because life insurance companies, not to get into the weeds here, but there's statutory capital requirements, um, all states kind of required so they can be able to pay out these policies over time. They pay out a dividend each year. Yes, you can't prove that it's earned all the time to your point of what the yields might be. I haven't looked deep enough into some of these companies' balance sheets, but they are carefully watched, whole different level of, quote, stress tests, if you will, because there's amount of capital these life insurance companies have to keep. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to the property insurers as well. I mean, start to walk through this and think it through and say to yourself, okay, will they be able to write some of the property insurance that they be able to historically write against, you know, areas that are obviously prone to disasters? And if that happens, what subsequently happens to the real estate markets in those areas? I mean, this is not next week. This is not next month, but this is something you have to think about. And I'll say this, you know, I've said it for a while. Interest rates, Danny, in my opinion, could go back to zero. We could get back to the levels we saw over a year and a half or so ago. But you know what? That's not going to help the credit markets at all. I think credit markets are going to remain tight and get tighter regardless of where rates go. And I don't think people are paying close enough attention to that. Credit conditions are going to tighten regardless of what the Fed does from here, one, and regardless of where interest rates go from here, number two, tighter credit conditions hamstring the consumer. The consumer is 73% of the economy. And if there's hamst- if they're hamstrung, by definition, our economy is as well. What's amazing is how people look for immediate results or catastrophic results from something occurring. So it was just two weeks ago, or really a week ago, that people were talking about, okay, the new regulatory requirements the banks are going to have to face will create a slowdown in lending and tighter credit conditions. They don't know how to measure that on day one, two, three, four, even. But to your point, Guy, it's going to start coming out. We're going to get a lot of information, obviously, I think, as the banks kind of report in in a couple weeks here, JP Morgan being the biggest one, I think, that comes first around the biggest ones on, on April 14th. And let me put this back in perspective. So QE, obviously, has been the root of this rally in the markets overall since 2009. I mean, all of it has been easy money. We have now gone, Fed balance sheet report came out yesterday. We are back to $8.733 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet. Now, that's mostly from the discount window, obviously, and people may say, oh, that's temporary. Is it temporary? I don't know, but I'm, we're back to 8.7. We're barely off the highs. You know, boy, we were 8.95 at the peak. So $350 billion has come in that's got to go somewhere. I don't know what the money multiple effect of that is. You think about the S&P 500 as being a, I don't know, 30 trillion dollar market, you can start to do the math of the impact that it might have. But people are looking for an immediate like, okay, I guess it's all clear. People, it's not all clear. But this bank crisis is very different for each bank. Everybody is very different. Some banks, it's just about earning less and there's no quote risk of a run. Some banks, you know, obviously that are that carry sub $250,000 depositors making up the majority. I don't think there's a lot of risk there. Those issues with those banks may be in their commercial real estate portfolio, which we'll see later. And then there's the things like the Schwab, which kind of have both things intertwined. And I said last week, you got to separate the entity of Schwab from the stock price of Schwab. They're two completely different things. I believe there is zero risk to the entity because it is way too big of a company to, quote, fail. But what Bettinger, the CEO, said you know, last week is going to come back to Biden, and they've since kind of cut him off from being able to kind of speak. And we can go into kind of this Morgan Stanley downgrade that Dan alluded to here a couple minutes ago and, and break it down. I'm happy to go through that here. We track John Butters. He is the senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet. And you know, he had some data out just last week in his earnings insight blog about how 
S&P earnings have come down, at least estimates, um, you know, about 5% over the course of the quarter, right? That's for Q1. And so, again, we still have expectations for mid to high single digits for S&P earnings this year. But this Schwab, okay, this Schwab downgrade by Morgan Stanley today, they cut earnings estimates for this year and for next by 30%. Can you guys remember when we have seen an analyst make that sort of cut on a $100 billion market cap company since COVID? I mean, like, seriously, and I don't even think in COVID they cut the out year. The stock about a month ago was above $80. I think it was close to 85 bucks. And it's trading at $52 right now, and it has a $68 price target. I think the headline was kind of funny, Danny. It was like, there's still 23% upside to their 12-month price target. I mean, when you start to see 30% hits to earnings estimates, and if you're going to have other uh, you know, analysts follow and consensus is going to come down, that stock has more room to run on the downside. It's so funny you said that because I actually did the math. I didn't see that headline. I said, you know, an equal weight. A neutral is 23% upside. Seems like a great thing to me. And for people out there, that goes back to kind of the, the game of sell-side research on Wall Street. And the point that Dan just made, and I've always said, if you're bearish on Wall Street and you're wrong, you lose your job. You know, if you're bullish and you're wrong, you get to keep your job. And the inherent kind of belief or the <laughs> inherent rating has always been buy rating on Wall Street. That's just been the nature of it for a long time. I don't care if they talk about separation of banking and research. It's kind of all tied in here. But let's look, let's dig a little bit deeper. We talked last week about Schwab and I kind of threw a number out. I mean, I could see earnings drifting down to kind of a 250 to $3 level. Morgan Stanley dropped their number to $3.18. There is somebody out there now at $2.52 actually on the downside. And really what it comes down to is exactly what you think. It's not about Schwab losing assets in the entire universe of Schwab. It's about people shifting their assets into money market funds from deposits. They were earning 0.46% to earn 4.5%. It's that simple. And the fact that this analyst at Morgan Stanley believes that Schwab may be required to raise capital because of how Washington is going to come down on these banks and also force them potentially take a write down on their fixed income portfolio, which could be in excess of $20 billion. That's the reason. So it's kind of a get ahead of it, still keep my quote, equal weight rating. But hey, look, I'm still bullish on it technically because it's a $68 target. But yeah, it's a lot. you got to really dig in there. But Dan, you make a great point. It takes a lot for these analysts to really go after one of their own, so to speak. And this isn't really going after. Let's talk about that point because this brings us back to the financial crisis. Just so you know, there's still 17 buys, seven holds, and only one sell. So, you know, there's still the analyst community is still pretty bullish. Guy, when you see a major financial institution like Morgan Stanley, and it's interesting to note, Morgan Stanley is not just an equity research behemoth, not just an asset management behemoth, right? They're an investment banking behemoth. They probably love the opportunity to do business with companies um, like Schwab. They also own E-Trade which is one of Schwab's major competitors. So going back a little bit to the financial crisis, I think it's important to understand is like, I don't think the folks at Morgan Stanley, like they, they don't take this sort of downgrade in the eye of a storm right here, particularly lightly, you know, because you don't want to cause an investor run on the stock. Forget about uh, a run on the bank's assets by its depositors or its investors. Right. You could look at it one of two ways. I mean, you could say, well, that'd be great for Morgan Stanley vis-a-vis E-Trade because theoretically, if something were to happen to Schwab, that money has to find a home. The flip side of that is they're not going to be impervious either, Morgan Stanley E-Trade to this. So something like that requires a lot of thought without question. And we were talking about this before we started the show today. You know, in the financial crisis, it was Meredith Whitney that was blowing 
the whistle, but she was doing it from CIBC Oppenheimer, which I would submit is not really a tier one bank. So there was probably some latitude for her to do something like that going against some of the behemoths as opposed to a JP Morgan or a Bank of America or Merrill Lynch at the time making a similar type of case against the Citibank. Just thoughts on that, Danny. Yeah, listen, she had a very high profile at the time. So, And I worked at CIBC Oppenheimer, so I'm going to say it was a major institution. I was there as well. She had a pretty big voice out there, as you guys know. And so, yes, the risk reward of maybe and the ability to do that. Let's not talk about whether your research director will let you do it. It was a gutsy call and it was right on the money. And so, you know, that they were going to cut their dividend. And that was kind of the beginning of capital outflows and capital preservation, if you will, at these banks, what they had to do. So it does matter where it comes from. There was nothing in this report that was alarming. There was nothing in this report where he said, oh, I'm worried for Schwab as an entity. This is just fundamental. This is just math. And that's really all this is. I think it's more of a valuation call. You can let your mind race and get bigger. But if someone sees that downgrade and they say, oh, Schwab's going out of it. No, that's not what's going to happen here. But Schwab has a reconciliation problem in terms, I think, on what true earnings are and the earnings power of the company. So You, know, you mentioned QE, QT. You, know, you made a bet with Dan last year over the summer that you thought the Fed would cut rates by Christmas. So, all right, that didn't come to fruition. But you said over and over again, QT, quantitative tightening, was not going to be able to last. There was no way they could go through with it and probably lasted longer than you thought. But to your point, you know, that balance sheet got down to what, about $8.3 or so trillion? And here we are right up against it. So I guess my question to you is, if QT is over, if we're back in QE effectively vis-a-vis this window that they've opened up, what's going to happen to the dollar one? And then subsequently, I'll go back to it. All roads to me lead back to gold. Thoughts on all of that? Yeah, look at the euro and the yen strengthening. Those make up obviously a big part of the Dixie, the DXY, which has now drifted down to near 102. I mean, that pretty much explains why gold's at 2000, why oil's beginning to rally and why assets are kind of inflating in general, right? So QE causes obviously assets to inflate. The S&P is inflating. That's fine. So it's a tougher market to trade, to be honest with you, Guy. It's hard to figure out how stocks are going to react and where people are going to put their money when the Fed is, quote, printing. Now, this is a different kind of printing, right? This isn't printing to go out and buy necessarily out in the out market treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They're doing it at the discount window instead in the form of these banks coming to them. It's kind of the same thing, but it's a little bit different. But still at the same time, you have to respect it and wonder at what point are we going to start to wean off of this, if ever. And we've said all along, and I know Vinny and Porter have echoed this, we don't think that we can wean off of it. So what's next here? At what point do we start to really be concerned about the health of the U.S. balance sheet in general? And we've talked about this before, and I'm telling you, this debt ceiling issue, maybe people thought a month ago that it wasn't going to matter. It's starting to matter more only because it's going to highlight all of this shit that's been going on and the ability to keep our printing our way out of this at some point has to have a consequence. All right. So let me then play devil's advocate in this triumvirate that we are. If, in fact, they're going back to QE and that adage of don't fight the Fed is still in place, am I being too simplistic to think that's why stocks are rallying now and that's why they will probably continue to rally? Or is there some bogey out there that I'm missing? There's a big bogey that you're missing. It's called inflation. And exactly. through all the other QE times, they didn't have to worry about that. This you have to worry about people's cost of living. And yes, inflation may be coming down and they're getting it, finally getting it under control. But rest assured, if this QE keeps accelerating or continuing, that's going to come at a massive cost. And again, go back to your 
comment on on gold guy. I mean, this is why gold I think is starting to perform very well here because now it's in the ultimate perfect setup here. So there is a consequence now that wasn't there any other time in QE one, two, three, and four. And I will officially call this QE five. We're going to talk about QE. They were just in the process of QT, right? Uh, on the on the tightening supposedly, but that balance sheet didn't come uh, down meaningful. And, and you know, I, listen, guy, you've been saying this for a very long time. When they finally pivot, when they finally cut rates, it's not going to be um, something that's really supportive of equity valuations, right? It's going to be for all the wrong reasons. And you know, it's just interesting when you think about the volatility that we've just seen of late in, in the uh, treasury market. It's been absolutely crazy. We've highlighted the move index, right, that tracks volatility in treasury yield. When you look at the VIX, which tracks the, the volatility, right, uh, of the S&P 500, I mean, it's below 20. It's melting. It's going back to a level where it's been a great level to sell stocks, right? But the technical setup looks very different to me now if you look at the S&P 500 and if you look at the NASDAQ 100, because we went from making a series in 2022 of lower highs and lower lows. Now, now we're making a series of higher lows, right? And so if you just look at the charts, and I know this is a podcast, so you can't look at the charts on the podcast here, people, you know, it's making a little bit of a triangle. And it looks like the S&P is going to break one way or another. We're at 4050 right here. The tension is building. The NASDAQ 100 looks very different. It looks actually e even more constructive. And again, I know there's a lot of listeners of this podcast who don't give a crap about charts, right? They're tracking S&P earnings. They're tracking, you know, valuation levels relative to historical and they're tracking really what Danny's saying. If we're in QE5, then the game has changed. Yeah, it's becoming evident if the economy does start to slow, which I think it's going to, be, again, because credit conditions will have an impact. Not today, not necessarily tomorrow, but maybe months from now. And that's, I think, on the horizon. And if they do start to print money, so to speak, in QE5, it will add to the inflationary pressures and certainly make that worse. It's going to make it a lot worse. And then, you know, they find themselves in an extraordinarily difficult position. You know, the ECB moved 50 basis points. A lot of people thought they were going to flinch. I think, and I think you would agree with me, Danny, Europe has a more significant inflation problem than we have. But with that said, the problems are very similar. So the ECB, in my opinion, made the right move. They said, you know, we see what's going on. We're going to move 50 basis points regardless. To a certain extent, our Fed stayed with it as well with that 25 basis point hike. But again, the QE portion of this, the balance sheet getting back to almost $9 trillion, that might be enough. That might be the signal the equity market's looking for. Again, the problem is, and I've said this for months, inflation is going to get right back out of the bag. That genie is very difficult to put back in the box. You bottle. have been saying that, and maybe that's what gold is telling us here too. Um, hey, Danny, this is the part of the podcast where we kind of go back to the big short. And now that I, I, I guess, you know, while I was gone on vacation a few weeks ago, guy watched the movie, you did a whole pod on it. It was kind of amazing here. Um, but there was a story that really caught my attention. And it's important, I think, to me, like right now, because the what S&P 500 is telling you the way it's acting right now, right here is that the banking crisis of early 2023 is over, right? And and so like this story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Deutsche Bank sell-off focuses attention on credit default 
swap market. And again, I know that sounds so 2008, 2009. And the last time we really spent a whole heck of a lot of time talking about CDS was maybe during the, the European sovereign debt crisis here. But this article is talking about Deutsche Bank, and it really is obviously referring to what was next after the Credit Suisse failure, or I guess, you know, like savior from UBS, is talking about whether the tail was wagging the dog a little bit, right? There was activity in Deutsche Bank CDS earlier this week that caused a sell-off in the equity. Talk to us a little bit about what this means to you. You obviously were very focused on the CDS market back in the big short days when you were with Vinnie Porter and Steve Eisman, right, at Front Point. Explain to our listener a little bit about this market. It's a bit opaque. It's not always what you think it is. And I'm curious what you thought about this situation with Deutsche Bank earlier in the week. If put options are a way to express negativity on equities, Credit default swaps are a way to express negativity on the debt of that same company. And so to your point, people watch, obviously, the fixed income markets more than equity because in a company like a Deutsche Bank or any company that has debt as part of their balance sheet, that's the important part because if the debt's fine, you can then start to look at the equity. If there's any problem with the debt at all, you know there's going to be a problem with the equity. What that article kind of brought up on these credit default swaps, CDS, so you basically buy credit protection. What happened was after Credit Suisse, it looks like they wiped out some of their senior bonds, so to speak. I think there was a lot of nervousness that that could happen with someone like Deutsche Bank. So I think that created it. The second part of that article that was interesting, there's not as much liquidity as there was certainly in 2008 in the bank's ability to take, quote, the other side of the trade. There's not many places to place this. So you can move those markets, to your point, Dan, with very little. When I say very little, I'm sure it's still tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, but relative to the size of the Deutsche Bank balance sheet, you can get a move. And so there's questions about manipulation. Did someone go out there and buy puts on the equity and then go out there and start buying credit default swaps on the banks themselves to kind of create that? That's one kind of thing that they that they talked about. But I think the important thing is people kind of use it as a signal. Silicon Valley Bank, we saw CDS, we, we saw their debt blowing out. We measured that by the credit default swaps and where those were trading right at the time. We saw it in Credit Suisse. We're seeing it now in certain things. And so it's a tool to watch. It's potentially a tool to manipulate, you know, but it has been around for years. But I think the lack of liquidity certainly is very telling. And I remember in 2008 and nine, after kind of the US had gone through its experience, the European banks started to basically take on water and it was in, everyone got excited to replicate the big short trade there. And people actually got run over trying to buy credit default swaps and buying protection on the European banks, because by that time, the regulators had figured out, quote, how to save these things, and it backfired on a lot of people. So there's there's scar tissue always uh, in credit default swap land, but I hope that somewhat explains it. And I think it certainly is a great indicator, but I think you really need to, to peel back the onion and take a closer look at the size of the credit default swap market relative to the size of that bank's balance sheet. So just having you to, to sort of dissect this, is so amazing for us because I know personally I'm not equipped to do it. But the flip side of that coin, Danny and Dan, is of course then Steve Schwartzman, who speaking, I believe, in Tokyo, and he says U.S. banking crisis is solvable. Yeah, I would think a lot of things are solvable. So you know he expects most U.S. banks to withstand the current industry turmoil. But this is where it's interesting. Blame it on the after effects of the pandemic and technology rather than a wave of bad loans. I agree with the bad loans portion, but to blame it on cell phones and the access that people have to be able to basically take their money out of the bank with a push of a button, I don't know. I mean, I don't really think that's what the the root of the problem is. That's the world we live in, so I guess he has to deal with it. 
The banking system quoting is not in any type of conventional crisis. I agree. It's not conventional. That's what makes it to me so interesting because there's nothing conventional about it. And again, with the movement of interest rates, we talk about the move index. We had somebody on market call bringing up the relationship between the move index and the VIX, and it's at levels we haven't seen in 15 years. And all those things are flashing red. The only thing not right now is effectively the S&P, Dan. I find it rich that Schwartzman had those comments. Why? Remember what we keep talking about, the Blackstone REIT? Yeah, there's a way to solve a run. Just limit redemptions to 5% per quarter, and there is no rush. Here we are. We're, we're a day before quarter end. We know there's S&P rebalancing here. We know there's just some stuff. I think the guy, the, the point that you made about the relationship between the move index and the VIX you know, at 15-year wides, if you will, there's something going on here. And I know it's really hard, people, to kind of look at this and just say, and we just talked about the technicals, and we just talked about QE5, as Danny just called it. I think you're the first one to call it that, Danny. And you'd say to yourself, if the old playbook, is in play here, you buy stocks. You buy them for the breakout here. The the, the crisis is over. I guess I'm just not willing to con concede that just yet. I don't think the crisis is over. And I mentioned that Steve Schwartzman was speaking in Tokyo. So let's stay there for a second, Danny, because I don't think, again, this is just my opinion, the market is not focused on what's going on with Japan. Kuroda was a long-term uh, official. Basically, he was the Federal Reserve chief the same way that Jerome Powell is. He was a guy in Japan for a very long time. He has officially now stepped down. They have tried everything they possibly can. And you talk about a zero interest rate environment that we've had here. Think about what's been going on in Japan. So those folks have been lulled to a sense of security and complacency as well. But the new governor there, what's going to happen with these yield curve controls? What is going to happen if things start to go pear-shaped there? I don't think the market is nearly as focused as it should be on the potential, I'll use the word, blow-up in Japan with what's going on with what they've been trying to do for quite some time. Thoughts on that, Danny? April 8th, Yuda, I'm not going to, I'm sure I mispronounce his name, is taking over. Obviously, he's the BOJ governor. And remember, the current yield curve, quote, control is to maintain the Japanese 10-year at 50 basis points. It's been anticipated, obviously, that at some point that's going to come off, but that this guy would continue to be dovish, this new guy. We are now at 0.32% before he even gets there. So there's anticipation, obviously, of that Dovishness. Now, he also believes that while inflation is running 3% and had been increasing, that inflation by the end of the year next year will be down to 1.6%. So to your point, Guy, if that's wrong, right, and all this is really only contributing potentially to more inflation, there's talk about obviously money potentially coming back to Japan that's in all over the world. And it's north of $3 trillion, right? It's, it's not a small number, including U.S. Treasuries, which we've talked about, they're the largest foreign holder of U.S. Treasuries. And so Again, I'll mention it. People don't want to pay attention to it. Don't have to pay attention to it today. But like everything else, people don't pay attention to anything until it's right in front of your face. You can talk about Silicon Valley for four months. Then finally, the day that it happens, you're like, what was that? Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Same thing with Bank of Japan. I'm not saying there's anything earth shattering that's going to come out right away, but it's something that you have to pay attention to because they're such an important part of the global economy. And because they have their fingers in literally global economics, it matters. And so get up to speed on that you know, Investopedia people uh, start to read up on that. So. Wait, that's a great tease. You know who Guy and I are having a conversation with tomorrow? Caleb Silver. Oh, from that's Invest right. In Investopedia. Look at that. Yeah, that that's going to drop on Monday morning. Ask him tomorrow. I mean, I guarantee, like, I don't have to guess what the most searched quote terms are of things that are out there, but it's a great barometer and it's probably a great tool to see what's already kind of occurred when that peak kind of occurs, you know, just like AAII bull bear index, you know, when it's at the top, 
of the bullish, you should sell and vice versa. When it's really bearish, you should buy. But $3.4 trillion of assets the Japanese have outside of their territory, mostly in United States bonds. Think about that for a second. And again, I'm not suggesting it's all going to go flying away immediately, but Danny's right to talk about this. I mean, I think it's probably contributing to the volatility we're seeing in the bond market. So we bring these things up not to scare people, but to illustrate, despite the shiny object in the form of the S&P and the NASDAQ, which looks great, all these things right below the surface continue to bubble up. And I think it's really important. Somebody's got to be out there sort of showing people the light. Danny, you said this before, not to get too wonky. You know, I was out the other night with the guy who trades a large derivatives book um, at a large bank. Okay, so he is seeing lots of different inputs, right, to just from just straight up equity investors, how um, some investors are using options, whether they be single stock, whether they be indexed, whether they be, you know, a whole host of other products to kind of express views in the markets or hedge. And, you know, it was interesting because I asked him, I said, you know, what, what is your sense about about investor positioning in the banks, even after we've had this decline, right, in some of the major sort of money center banks. And, you know, it's it's worth noting, right, through all of this, I mean, the KRE, which is the regional banking index, is about 26% lower on the year. The XLF is down about 7%. Bank America is down 14.5%. For some reason, Bank America acts much worse than Citi, which is up 2% on the year. Wells Fargo is down 9.5%, and JP is only down 4%. There are implied dividend cuts that you can see in the options market in a name like Bank America. Okay, so think about that. And we talked about that last week. So if every federal banking regulator, the White House is calling for greater you know, financial regulation. And Danny, I'd love to get your take on this, okay, because this is really out of the big short playbook, if you will, and talking about Meredith Whitney's call was in late 07 that Citigroup was going to have to cut their dividend, right? And that was the thing that caused investors, because there's a lot of investors in in stocks like Citigroup, you know what I mean? They're in it primarily for the, the, the cash return, right? The dividend payout. So if Bank America right now, looking out, let's call it a year or so, is implying dividend cuts. What does that mean about how the regulation is going to cause them to, to take less risk, have more capital, right, to put up? If they're going to be on the hook, all these major money center banks, if there are more regionals that are going to have to tap these FDIC, you know, like insurance funds, and they're going to have the major money center banks put up capital to pay for it, or as they had to do, put deposits in these regionals, that means that they're going to have less cash right? And this is the whole earning story to give back to shareholders. And the options market in the equity market is telling you that Bank America is likely to have to cut their dividend. I don't know how to comment further. You just nailed it. And for some reason, people are separating the banks from the economy at this point, which is fine. Banks are not participating, as we mentioned at the top of the show, really in this rally. And I think it's kind of wait and see. There's no question there's going to be a ton of scrutiny on these banks going forward. And if you throw in what we believe, the three of us at least believe, is a slowing economy or potentially a recession, right? That's going to even feel worse, Dan, to that point. And so if they get restricted from paying out anything in the form of buying back stock or dividend, part of the reason for the Schwab downgrade was the analyst believes that they're not going to be able to do anything to do either at some point. And so it matters to earnings. The inability to buy back stock obviously hurts your share count. Obviously, you can't reduce it. Now, paying out Dividend, you could argue if you keep it on the balance sheet, you know, maybe you're not paying it out, it stays on the balance sheet. But I think what we're looking at here 
is a lower ROE profile in general for the banks going forward. And we're just now kind of adjusting to it. And I, no one can predict exactly, Dan, the mergers between all these smaller regionals and how this is going to play out. I think the problem here is this was the canary in the coal mine that guy named the show last week. We're just kind of beginning. And again, people don't think that this, quote, crisis is over. Call it what you want. I'm not even calling it a banking crisis that has been occurring. I'm calling it just. Danny, how is it not a crisis? I mean, think back to, okay, the financial crisis happened all at once. People thought the Bear Stearns in March of 2008 was kind of an isolated situation. It was pushed in the arms of the perceived strongest bank. It had federal backstops. And then, you know, we just kept on chugging along. And we mentioned this a week or two ago, the S&P after the bear thing in mid-March rallied into mid-May, I think like 15% or something like that. So when we talk about what's going on in the broad market here, I mean, we have analogs for how this could just keep going up in your face and really just kind of all coming together at once at some point in the future. And so when you look at how some of these other regionals are trading, they're trading like their equity is worthless. Okay. And that's the first Republic and some of the others. And so how many banks does it take for their equity to go to zero? right? For us to realize that it will not be isolated to just one part of the banking system. And then it goes to back to the credit situation, right? So if companies are going to have a much harder time accessing credit, we already know that consumers are, we're going to start having the defaults in a slowing economy. And so ultimately, all of these major money center banks are going to actually have to start like thinking about what does a weaker economy look like in tighter credit conditions. And so, so to me, I just don't know how there's not a round two of what we just experienced over the last month. And it really feels like that if you're buying the S&P and you're buying the NASDAQ right here, you're whistling past the graveyard. Dan, part of this is just a normal credit cycle, which we haven't had to experience now for 15 years. And so it feels horrible and quote systemic because all of a sudden it's finally happening. Fed's been raising rates for over a year now, right? People should have been able to predict that. It's just bad risk management by banks. The big difference here, Dan, is that you, the kind of leverage that existed on the Wall Street banks at the marks that they were carrying on the subprime shit that was worth zero. These assets for the most part that have caused this quote crisis aren't worth zero. It was a duration issue. So I see these as two completely separate types of things. Now, Every era has its own, quote, crisis. My point is that this isn't the end of the world, potentially, that we saw potentially happening in 2008, and we did. But what we did do to stop the end of the world, we then put everything on the government's balance sheet, created all these programs, which we are now have to deal with, again, to use the word reckoning, again, have to deal with. And that's why I felt that QT was never really going to happen in a long term, because if you really start to take that heroin out of the veins of investors and even the banks, anyone that uses these, quote, products, it's going to be painful. And so it's a shame that we don't have the ability to even deal with a trillion dollars of an unwind on the Fed balance sheet. And the Fed was trying to do the right thing to stop inflation. And so the parts that are systemic are that banks shouldn't be paying 0.26% to their depositors. It was coming. That's not shocking. That's not a surprise. It got exacerbated because the Silicon Valley had educated a lot of people very quickly. And now what I said a month ago, it's going to make people start to look at the balance sheets more than they should have at the banks. And yes, the regulators will probably overreact. And let's think back to this. I remember when the rules were relaxed, right? When Dodd-Frank was kind of peeled back, there was some valid reasons for it. The valid reasons for some of it was that small community banks that kind of do normal course of business shouldn't have to pay all these fees and be held back because they want to lend in their local communities and, and all that stuff. I get it. 
But shame on the regulators for not watching over time or even beginning to understand, this is a rot now, beginning to understand what the impacts would be or even having in a stress test environment, what happens to the price of mortgage-backed securities when you raise rates? What happens to the price of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries when you try to pull $9 trillion or call it seven of that $9 trillion out of the system over a period of time? So this to me was easy to see potentially coming. I think the complexity of the products that were traded and created in 2005, six, seven, that blew up in eight were a whole different can of worms. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Just to sort of dovetail or segue to something that I find fascinating, and I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but you know, I see this headline, and again, we'll see if it means anything, nothing. Maybe it's just a, a nothing burger, as so the kids say, but Apple rolling out buy now, pay later to me reeks of early cycle desperation, Dan Nathan. Am I making too much out of this? No, I actually think, and I've been reading a little bit about this, and again, this is a sector, I don't know why, Danny, but it seemed like at some point, it was at late 2021, you had BNPL on your radar. And it's also worth noting that- Short it, now, cover later, yes, instead of buy now, what, cover later. That's Correct. what you called it. And you know, it's interesting that that Hindenburg research report about Square Block, you know, the short report that came out last week, they spent a lot of time talking about Square's acquisition. I think it was August of 2021, is that right? Of Afterpay, which was like at the time, I think it was a $29 billion all stock deal. And when you think about what Square Block, what their market cap is right now, it's less than the purchase price at the time of that company. It was a total frenzy, right? And so I think about Apple and I say, well, they have a $2 billion installed base of iOS devices globally. And they think about that every one of those devices, for the most part, has a credit card attached to it, right? And so think about the behavior that they get to see through their pay, Apple Pay, right? Through the way that that people, you know, like if they don't have their cards turned off or this and that or whatever, I actually think that a company like theirs has a great opportunity to do credit products and payment products. And And I don't know what you think, Danny, especially when some of these upstarts, 
and to use the term upstart or a firm, they failed because they were a crappy business model that had no backing on it. So as a service to what Apple's been already able to roll out across the globe, it actually probably makes a lot of sense. And we know that they're really interested in consumer finance products. Yeah, they announced this a while ago that this was going to be coming. And, it, you know, it really is a firm, not upstart, that was the buy now, pay later, Jim. That was Max Lefkin, who obviously formerly of PayPal, who thought that somehow he could take technology and commoditize lending. That never works. But you're right, Dan, people that use Apple almost for everything, a lot more leverage Apple would have over the consumer than in a firm would have over a consumer from defaulting or not paying. So certainly they see a lot more. They control the consumer a lot more. And if you've watched the buy now pay later here over time. It's kind of been changing in real time in terms of the time allowed to pay back and kind of certain products that you can, probably can't do anymore. I see it a lot less. I've never used it, but I see it a lot less than I used to. And remember, it was also used a lot by the people that were selling the products kind of as a factoring tool. So what these buy now, pay later, they would basically pay 95 cents on the dollar to the person that was selling the product itself so they could get cash then. And then they were trying to get it on the other end from the consumer at the same time. So this model, one of these great things that works in a, in a lab and algorithms and shows that it can be, when you apply it to the real world, it doesn't work so well. Apple probably has the best shot to make that work. So Danny, I know you do a lot of light reading at night and it comes in the form of these 10Ks which fly across your desk, but one of them caught your eye. Yeah. I wanted to mention GameStop last week after earnings, but we had a fun-filled pack show. I couldn't get to it because it's the name I've talked about since we started this podcast. It's kind of obviously GameStop was a documentary by our good friend, you know, Rebecca Jarvis and so forth. This has been going on. It was kind of the poster child. We've now seen Bed Bath Beyond effectively go to zero. I think it's down at 50 cents today. We've seen a lot of these companies go by the wayside. GameStop has not yet. And so what happened was stock kind of round-tripped into the quarter you know, 23 to 16, 17, back to 23, 25, now drifting kind of back again. And let me explain the quarter real quick. And then what I found in the in the 10K, I promise I won't spend too long on this. So in the quarter, they quote beat instead of a loss of 13 cents, they made 16 cents. Yay. Instead of doing 2.2 billion in revenue, they did 2.22 billion in revenue. Keep in mind, this was a January quarter, actually the end of the fiscal year 22. That's how retail does. Don't, it occurred in 23. Don't worry about that. That's their biggest quarter after that. Obviously, people buy video games. Christmas season, et cetera. So what they did was they basically stopped buying inventory. So they're shutting a lot of stores and so forth. So their inventory, to put in perspective, is down to under 700 million now. So you can kind of see that's how they had a positive quarter in earnings was just not refilling the stores. But here's what's interesting. Forget about the fact that it's a 7 billion market cap that has 1.3 billion in, in cash and I believe will burn for the rest of the year. So they started to get into this NFT business. You may, might remember with FTX middle of last year. And one of the big things they call it collectibles. It's part of their NFT business. Yeah, they do sell, I think, stuffed teddy bears, like an old Spencer gift store in these stores now, which are basically empty, but there is a collectible business that's growing. So I like to read through K's to see what I can find. So three pages, pages 12, 13, and 14 of the 10K. Now, Coinbase has been receiving Wells notices and things for tokens. We know that the SEC, they have three pages basically allocated to the fact that we're aware that we created a marketplace. We're aware that these may be deemed as securities, not tokens. And this is GameStop saying it. Now, there was no Wells notice that they said that occurred. I find it very interesting that three pages were dedicated to this in the 10K. Yes, it's 16% of their business, but they have no other business. It's the only area that's growing. No one's buying soft, no one's buying video games at the store. They download them. So dying business, I think it's prime here. I don't know what short interest did after the quarter was reported. But again, people, these are the type of things where if they do get a Wells notice, and I'm not saying they are. And by the way, I own puts on GameStop. I'm going to disclose that right now. Yes, I am, quote, 
talking my book, but I'm objectively telling you to go read the 10K for yourself. So anyway, I think the company is massively overvalued. They got leases, you know, on 4,000 stores that are empty and all kinds of, I could go deeper, but that's my uh, follow-up 10K dorky essay. So Dan, we were able to do a great podcast with TRB, the TRB, that's the reform broker and and Michael Michael Batnick. They are compound and friends. We are the friends in this. That came out this week. You should check it out because as negative as we are, TRB, the TRB, is actually very constructive on the market. And you think things are actually a lot better than people think. And obviously, if you've listened to the last 56 minutes, I think we've been even more negative than we've been recently. I promise next week we're going to come back with some things that we're watching that we might be excited about and you might get excited about as well. The point about this pod today is that there's some stuff going on and under the hood. And we talked about a bunch of wonky products that have been kind of actually, I think, helpful to us over the course of our careers to kind of recognize some inflection points. And so maybe sometimes the broad market doesn't see what, you know, like we're seeing about this sort of stuff. So in the meantime, you know, the move in the in the stock market in particular has kind of proving me wrong a little bit, but I'm actually sticking to my guns here. And I think that financials, we're going to continue to lead the way lower, specifically banks. And let's see, sooner or later, I think the rest of the market's going to catch up to it. Danny, we're going to get you back soon up in New York City in the studio with us. And we can't wait for that. We're going to have a lot of fun guests over the next few months here live IRL, as the kids say. I'm off next week. I don't know when the last time I I took a week off from this, but every time I tend to do that, the market seems to get killed because it won't it won't let me relish in it and i don't relish in anybody losing money but just keep that in mind people yeah but let me just make one point before we get out of here i just want to see a little fear in the market right now like again because we haven't had the recession right and i think the likelihood of a recession has just dramatically increased and with the stock market raging like it is in the quarter end i think there's a bunch of funky stuff going on there it's like it would be great to see a 25 vix again and an s&p that's back at 3800 or 3750 or something like that and just kind of put a little fear put a little of the bulls off sides a little bit which we haven't had in a bit Danny, have a great vacation, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. It will be April. By then, the Yankees will probably be 5-0, and and I'm going to be in a great mood. We'll see you soon, folks. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.